You are listening to the Will Academy podcast. This is episode number 86. Hello and welcome. My name is Elizabeth van Delden and once a week we talk to an industry expert from the wool industry supply chain from farm to fashion and beyond, delivering strategies and insights to be successful in wool and showcasing those beautiful stories wool has to tell. During the IWTO Congress in Hong Kong in May 2018, I had the chance to meet with Peter Morgan. Peter Morgan is a legend within the wool industry and he has a vast amount of knowledge. And I really hope you enjoy this episode with Peter as he shares his lifelong experience in the wool industry. Okay, Peter, it's lovely that we have time here during the IWTO Congress in Hong Kong to chat about the work that you do. So I would like to invite you to introduce yourself and tell us about yourself and the career that you had so far in the wool industry. Oh, oh, thank you, Elizabeth. It's, it's great to have the opportunity to, mm -hmm. to talk uh, with you, first, first of all, and to talk about the things that I'm involved in as a I think you know from your contact with me, I'm very passionate <laughs> about the wool industry yes. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's been very good to me and uh, over a long, long time and uh, I'm 77, still working full time and no intention of retiring <laughs> I've worked with some wonderful people and I've worked with a lot of wonderful people in the industry and I certainly work with some wonderful people right now. And. Uh, and I hope it's not misplaced, but they certainly appear to trust me. <laughs> and, yeah, tell me, how did you get started in the wool industry? Oh, well, that's, that's uh, interesting. I, I was born in Sydney. Uh, my mother uh, was born in Sydney, but had lived in the bush in New South Wales. My grandparents uh, on my mother's side at all, and uncles, and uh, not on my father's side. And... Uh, when uh, I finished uh, my high school uh, exams, uh, I, all I knew was that I wanted to go to university, but in a science-oriented uh, course, which was uh, an aiming at the University of New South Wales University of Technology, as it was called then. And uh, my father saw in the paper that there were scholarships for 500 pounds a year. This was in 19 end of 1957, a lot of money then, and uh, to do this course called Wool Technology and, uh, and he went and made an appointment for me <laughs> to go and see the, the head of the school and, uh, and we went out and saw them and uh, I decided that irrespective of whether I won a scholarship or not, I would do uh, Wool Technology, technology uh -huh. at the University of Technologies it was called then. and. Um, and uh, as you know, sometimes what you study at university is not where you finish up in, in the industry. And uh, I graduated with nine others. And uh, by the time, and they'd all retired, because I'm still retired, I, I was the only one still working in the sheep and wool industry. I've been in a formal working life, initially mostly with sheep, then. Mm -hmm. Since 1972, when I joined the Australian Wool Testing Authority, it's uh, been primarily about wool. And what do you do today? I'm the Executive Director of the Australian Council of Wool Exporters and Processors, 
and I have uh, the same sort of role with the private treaty wool merchants of Australia. Okay. And tell me a little bit about both organisations. Let's start with the Australian Council of Wool Exporters and Processors. Okay, look, it, uh, my role there is really to represent them. Uh, that could be involved, and a lot of it is representation with government. Uh, uh, some of the, the issues that I get involved with are generally trade issues. Uh, I did, uh, for example, I was uh, I'm heavily involved with uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in providing input and lobbying also mm -hmm. uh, on what I thought were industry requirements for the Australia-China Free Trade Agreement in particular because 80% of Australia's wool goes to China and, uh, and with other free trade agreements. Um, uh, I've also been involved with them when there are problems. Uh, and also the Department of Agriculture and Water Resources in Canberra because, uh, as you know, uh, what we call health certificates, you probably call a phytosanitary certificate in Europe, uh, uh, that declares the status of the wool or the country area where it came from. Uh, has to accompany every consignment that leaves Australia or New Zealand or South Africa and uh, there are sometimes there are issues there where uh, the bureaucracy on either side of the world um, is less efficient than we think it ought to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And describe a little bit your members in that organisation that we better Yeah, understand. look, uh, um, uh, the, uh, the members of the Australian Council of Exporters and Processors are mostly uh, what I call buyers or exporters. Um, there are only three processor members. Uh, and <coughs> now, when I joined these organisations in 1999, I think there were probably about 17 processors and uh, and some very big ones. Uh, G. H. Michelle, very big uh, by by world standards. But uh, from the late 1990s on, and, and particularly from after the global financial crisis in 2008, China was becoming more and more and more uh, dominant as uh, the uh, country that where Australian wool and, and from other countries was being processed, and the, the competitive nature of that just became too much for Australian wool processors, that's, and I'm talking particularly of early stage scouring, scouring, carbonising, top making, and um, today we've, we've only got the, the three left, and, um, uh, and they've learned to adapt, so in the, and the buyers and exporters, uh, it's most, most uh, that those roles are are intertwined of a buyer, a buyer and an exporter. It's not perfectly synonymous, but it's a lot because as uh, things have got tougher in the industry in general, um, they, uh, the staff numbers have reduced. So uh, most most organisations, the export person who's exporting is, is usually in the auction room buying as well, and that. And, and trading, they're, they're certainly multi, multi-skilled multi these guys, classes. where <laughs> in earlier days those roles were, there was a greater differentiation. And, and one of the other reasons was that um, 
uh, as you know, today uh, all wool was, comes off farm is sampled and tested for yield and fibre diameter and some other parameters, and that information is made available to the buyers when they're valuing the wool uh, prior to uh, the auction sale. And that allows them to value much more quickly than they could have in, in the past. And also we've got less wool today, so there are less, there's less wool to actually go and value. So um, they, um, uh, there's more to some through, through efficiency and changes in volume, and the, uh, there's more time to, to be able to uh, value and, and still have time to, to then go into the auction room. Mm. And um, you already mentioned a few of the tasks that you deal with. Would you say that we have like um, one certain goal to that you're always after to well represent? Yeah, look, uh, uh, it might sound trite or a bit idealistic or might sound like old bull. <laughs> <laughs> But I believe that if anything I do, if it's not good for the industry, It's not good for my members. I've got very, very strong views on that. Uh, and I'd have to say that all the presidents that I've had, that's with the exporters and processors and with the private treaty merchants, uh, their views have been similar. Mm. And I read that one of your goals is to always reduce the costs of trade and export. Yes, I'd, I've. Uh, I've always felt that uh, uh, there's a better way of doing everything. There's always a better way. And uh, I've uh, always uh, enjoyed problem solving greatly. And uh, that led me to become interested in the applications that we could make of uh, IT and when I was working at the Wool Testing Authority. And I, um, I did all the IT there for nine or ten years, uh, as well as be a regional manager. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I still uh, uh, create software today in my current roles uh, because it's, as I said, it's it's one of the best tools you can have for that doing the job better. Yeah, that's yeah. true. And. Um, uh, Well, we don't have a lot of money, so we, we, we're certainly not fat. And, and uh, uh, to be able to do all the things we finish up doing, we, and I'm, I'm not alone in doing this, so yeah. we have to be as efficient as we can, and I tease it. And what is exactly the private treaty wool merchants of Australia? <laughs> the private treaty wool merchants of Australia, um, uh, these guys that... Uh, They may live in the city or they may live in the bush, but they certainly have staff living in the bush. And they will go onto a farm and uh, make an offer and, and sort of, uh, buy the wool directly from the wool grower. And <coughs> whereas the other main form of sale, of course, it's uh, the wool grower delivers it to a wool broker, as we call it. Uh, I think in Europe you would call our buyer the broker, um, but the, the wool selling agent uh, who prepares wool for sale at, at auction. And 
And so the change of ownership there doesn't happen until all's offered for sale at auction and and, uh, and uh, one of my exporter, buyer-exporter members uh, buys it, uh, whereas with the private treaty merchant, the, the cash check, uh, he writes a check uh, at the door mm-hmm. and he takes... So as soon as the wool leaves the farm, the ownership has changed, whereas... Um, with the auction, the ownership doesn't change till mm. till the auction happens. And what sort of issues are you helping your members there? Yeah, um, well, we, we've had uh, some issues with government there. Um, uh, I think you did to call it uh, a bureaucracy, mm-hmm. uh, and also uh, in uh, just sort of general issues in dealing, interacting, and dealing with other. Well, dealing is not the right word, interacting is a better word, uh, with other sections of the trade, mm-hmm. the wool industry. Yeah. Okay. Uh, earlier in your introduction, you mentioned that 80% of Australia's wool goes to China. Correct. Give us a little bit of an overview about the export business of Australian wool. Okay. Look, um, the majority of wool, if we start, if we talk about the, the, the wool pipeline, the sheep are shorn. The wool is classed on the farm, pressed into bales, average weight 178 kilos. Uh, goes to if it goes to auction, goes to a wool, to the wool broker, the wool selling agent's uh, warehouse. It's sampled there uh, for for uh, in two two ways. One is uh, one set of samples goes to the Australian Wool Testing Authority to be tested, as I made mention of that earlier on. And the second set of samples is um, uh, what we call it a grab sample. It's a, mecha- a mechanical claw that takes the samples, and uh, and those samples are average probably about five kilos in weight, and that goes into a, into a box that's reasonably flat, and 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 that's. Uh, those boxes are then made available to the buyers when they want to value the wool. And they come in, they've got, the, the, they can look at it for each uh, sale lot, which averages about eight bales, and I, uh, no, about six bales actually. And, and I think I said earlier that those bales won't average about 178 kilos in weight. So um, you're looking at about 900 kilos or something of wool. And the buyer looks at the, the sample. Uh, looks at, at the measured results in the catalogue. Mm-hmm. Sometimes says rubbish, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, there are uh, some characteristics of wool which uh, are not too difficult to measure yet uh, with any reliability. And so by looking at the sample, uh, he is able to assess. Those and style, that's the way it looks, how bright, you know, and, and um, that there can be a lot of difference between a very stylish wool and um, and uh, not so stylish wool. Uh, it can be partly genetic, it can be partly environment, but uh, one's more valuable than the other. Mm. And, and, uh, and then uh, they put that information there. Uh, uh, it's all very uh, much um, electronic. Um, a lot of them, they 
they have the catalogue information in electronic form and a handheld. Uh, and they enter their valuing, uh, they carry it around and enter it as their valuing. Of, uh, <coughs> they'll, they'll put a price on it and, and uh, then uh, they go into the sale room and uh, the wool selling agent, the wool broker, uh, uh, then s conducts the auction and if you've been there yourself, it's, it's pretty good, it's pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> over and they'll do over 200 lots an hour and uh, uh, it's the skill of both the auctioneer and the buyer is, is pretty impressive to watch. Yeah, I can't imagine how they do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, and then when the, they bought the wool, they, they have to pay for it. And uh, the wool stays in the wool selling agent's warehouse. He will not deliver the wool to the buyer export until it's paid for. And that in itself has got a, a great plus because it means the wool grower is protected, that you know, his wool doesn't leave his, uh, his agent's uh, control uh, until it's paid for. Mm -hmm. And uh, when uh, and, uh, the buyer then, it, it's, he buys wool in, in uh, sale lots of an average size of uh, about six bales, about about nine eight hundred nine eight fifty nine nine hundred uh, kilos. But he doesn't then sell the wool to an overseas processor as a six bale. So mm -hmm. he sells it most commonly at, at, at uh, hundred to one hundred and ten uh, bales, and uh, it, which he sells in container loads. Mm -hmm. it normally, a normal consignment is uh, how many bales you can fit in a, a container. Uh, and sometimes, uh, and that's that's around 100, 100, 110. Uh, and if they're <coughs> putting it into 20 foot container, 20 foot long, they would normally, uh, we call it dumping. Uh, but a dumping is a compression mm -hmm. of the bales and uh, they'll only they'll, uh, compress three bales uh, into one into units and they need to do that to be able to fit in into a th those bales into a 20 foot container and uh, that just about reaches the safe load mm -hmm. loading limit for a 20 foot container or there are containers that are 40 feet long and uh, they will go and put the same number of bales in there, but because there's the extra space, they don't have to, to dump or compress them. Mm -hmm. And that's a saving probably of about $15 a bale too, because this, uh, this, they're just picked up and put in there. Yeah. yeah. Now, are they sometimes also blended before they go into They the may be too? blended, but mm -hmm. not, not uh, normally they, uh, that, that, and I'll come to that in a moment, mm -hmm. uh, and then the, the container goes to ship and the ship goes to Shanghai or, or Bremen or, mm -hmm. or where, and, uh, and uh, the containers are um, sent to the, uh, the processing mill at the, uh, the client has directed it to. Mm -hmm. But yes, they can be blended. Now, uh, 
there's a part of the wool industry business where uh, people take lots that are perhaps uh, very small or uh, not being classed as well as they ought to be and uh, they'll take empty the wool out of the bales uh, and, and blend it together and repack it. Uh, they might be doing it for themselves and then to sell it on to their overseas client. Uh, or they may be doing it on a, a, a fee-for-service basis for somebody else, for another wool buyer. Mm -hmm. And ha you said 80% of wool goes to China, where does the other 20% go? Uh, it's, it's India's been our second main customer for most of the last eight or nine years, uh, and taking about eight or nine percent. Uh, Italy had been our second largest customer, but uh, and 15 years ago they were probably taking about 18 percent. Uh, our exports to, to and then. France and Germany are important, but the other, the other, and the Czech Republic. And today, the top five are China. Then you've got Italy, the Czech Republic, and um, and India, bracketed pretty close together, and uh, and um, Korea in fifth place. Mm. Okay. Um, and I mean, from the beginning, as I understand it, because Australia used to be part of. The well, it's still part of the British Commonwealth, but um, it used to belong to England. That's right. So, as I understand it, Australia has always been exporting its wool, and most back then, back to yes, yeah, goes right back to uh, the well, it goes right back to the 18th century. Australia was settled uh, in 1788, and and we talk about the first fleet, uh, which came to settle Australia, and uh, and there were obviously livestock mm -hmm. on that, and sheep were some of the livestock that were on it. Uh, but they would have been more for meat, and perhaps even for milk also. Um, uh, but the wool industry started to develop really about 1810, 13. Um, <coughs> In Sydney, where Australia was first settled, as you know, we have the Great Dividing Range, which is only about 50 miles inland from the coast. And that had been quite an impenetrable barrier for the early settlers, who only had horses or horse and carts in there. And despite the fact that Australia was settled in 1788, it wasn't until 1813 the passage or path was found across the, the Blue Mountains, as we call them, the Great Dividing Range, we call them the Blue Mountains because of the colour. And, as you know, on the, once you get across it, you've got wide open plains of highly fertile soil and, and very, and, um, and the, the people who settled Australia you know, were pretty exceptional people, you know, pretty entrepreneurial and, uh, uh, more sheep had been being brought with subsequent boats after the first fleet, and uh, and that included some uh, some wool sheep, specialised merino wool sheep from South Africa, and uh, and from Germany. 
and uh, that was the start of the merino wool industry and by the time that got across the uh, Blue Mountains in 1813 uh, numbers sheep and they just went they went west and um, and this was a country that was uh, had not been grazed by any domestic animals uh, and one of the features of that was that there's a, 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 a lot of grasses, but there are a lot of uh, what we would call herbage-type plants, annual plants, but are very nutritious, very nutritious, but very susceptible to grazing <laughs> too. And uh, so the uh, the productivity of the land in those early days was just and. Um, and I think the rams probably ran with the ewes all the year round. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, so um, numbers increased. They, they were aiming to increase numbers all the time, mm -hmm. and uh, um, they were giving uh, the rams every opportunity to do what they were required to do. And then, when did the first wool leave Australia? Then yeah, look, somewhere between eighteen thirteen, I think. Uh, well, I think the first wool that left Australia was actually um, from on the coastal side of the Blue Mountains. Um, the area. Um, the area immediately around where Sydney was was uh, pretty tough, uh, sandy soil, but inland, and you could go by river up the Parramatta River, only about uh, 20 miles of um, the soil was much more fertile, riverbank type country, and uh, and uh, the, that was where uh, Australia's wool industry really started. And uh, uh, a guy called John MacArthur, who was uh, in in the uh, the army, and uh, and his wife Elizabeth, uh, they were making that great success of growing wool out there, uh, out uh, twenty thirty miles west of. Sydney, but still on the same side, of the, not not across the Blue Mountains. Mm. And I think somewhere between eighteen thirteen and about eighteen fifteen, I think the first wool was sent to England. Mm. And was that a strategic decision by England to to no, create no, a wool industry in Australia for? No, I think. Uh, um, I don't think there's any. I think it, it happened because. Uh, Somebody had obviously had some notes, particularly to bring the sheep from South Africa, the merino sheep from South Africa and Germany. Um, so look, most things uh, are always a bit grey, so mm -hmm. they, they couldn't have done it without the the, uh, the support of the British government. Mm -hmm. Would not have been able to do it okay. without because so there was a governor of the colony, but he answered very much to the prime minister in England, mm -hmm. and. Uh, but uh, the, the level of production was not enough to sustain a wool buying or a wool, wool broking industry in Australia in, in those days. And uh, so the wool was sent to England uh, uh, where it was off for sale and, and I think some of that would have been sold by tender but particularly by auction also. Okay. And then as production increased, then increased very rapidly after people had gone across the Blue Mountains and the sheep there, uh, 
that, that the amount of wool that was going to to England or to Bradford actually, uh, uh, oh, there was London, both London and then and Bradford, um, uh, was increasing and increasing, and that, uh, wool selling there was a wool selling agents industry developed in Australia, um, but most of they were still sending it to to uh, Great Britain for sale. But as production grew and grew, then an Australian auction system was established, and, and a buying in both the buying and, and the broking industry. And, and that's uh, about the 1880s, I think, that, that was becoming in full flight. But but one of the interesting things about the Australian sheep and sheep and wool industry, there were there were people who uh, continued to send their wool to London for sale. And uh, when I left university in 1963 in Sydney and I went to live and work in the Pilbara district of northwest Western Australia, which was much better known for its iron ore than, than sheep and wool, there were two stations there, the two sheep properties that still sent their wool to, uh, to the London wool brokers. And even in the southwest of Western <laughs> Australia, there was people, there were some people who still sent their their wool to uh, to London to the London wool brokers but the last of them and I knew the guys on both those stations because I used to visit them uh, would have been about 1965 the last okay. last wool, <laughs> last wool but, uh, okay that's an interesting story yeah. Um, so yeah you told us that 80% of the Australian wool goes to China and in your introduction you also mentioned that the Australian China uh, wool agreement, free trade agreement. Free trade agreement. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about that. Oh, um, uh, uh, China has a history of uh, strong involvement in government in, in commercial activities, uh, and and uh, the, the additional bureaucracy that. Have to go to more forms, more doc, um, and uh, it's um, much different status sending to to Europe. Or, but that's changed enormously. That, that uh, there's, uh, I think, as we all know, there's a high degree of commerciality associated with dealing with China. Uh, but uh, as as part of that, uh, what do you call it? You wouldn't call it proliferation, but an expansion of free trade agreements between countries. Um, Australia has been uh, very active in um, uh, trying to develop free trade agreements with its trading partner. Australia is, is very dependent on export income. Uh, it's both through its agricultural industries and, and it's particularly sort of its agricultural industries and its mining industries. And if you go back you know, to the late 1800s, gold and wool, or wool and gold I should say, <laughs> were our two principal exports and there was an expression and you may have speaking with other Australians who may have used the expression that Australia used to be described as riding on the sheep's back. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty much true up until the Second World War, probably. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And then there was this big expansion of the mining industry from the 1960s on. And you were part of the negotiations? Yeah, well, I, 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 I wasn't at the table, but I, uh, I uh, was providing a lot of information mm -hmm. about the things that I thought were important to the wool industry into the, the government in Canberra. And uh, uh, wool, compared with other products, is not a high tariff product. In fact, uh, greasy wool going into China only had a 1% tariff on it. But to me, what was important in, in achieving the free trade agreement that was starting to talk about um, liberalising some of the the processes that uh, if we could get some greater efficiencies into that, that was going to be beneficial to the Australian wool industry and to the Chinese wool industry. Mm -hmm. And because, um, and when the free, when the uh, free trade agreement was finalised, uh, we finished up with uh, only 30 million kilograms was included. And uh, uh, that's for, uh, uh, where we, <coughs> at the total uh, exports to China in a year, let's say to probably about 250 million kilograms, so that's only one-eighth of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but to me that was a foot in the on the ladder, and, uh, and I think that's, um, that's been helpful. and uh, uh, and. Thirty million kilograms, and you take one percent off. And we <laughs> I think it was about. Ten, uh, I think we saved about uh, ten million dollars, mm -hmm. which is quite small. We, we, with the wool prices the way they are at the moment, we have um, uh, just passed three billion dollars in export mm -hmm. income. Well, in 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 sales, mm -hmm. so, yeah. But it, it, yeah, but it's and having the relationship with the government. Is very important mm -hmm. because uh, there's, there are many things that uh, an export industry has to do. But when you deal with the country, uh, uh, if it's a, a, a disease outbreak or it's um, all those decisions are made by the government. Mm -hmm. But but if we like to work with them, whether it be trade or, or let's call it biosecurity. Uh, and uh, to make them as aware as we can of the issues that are very important to the Australian wool industry and to its customers. And because we're the largest wool producer in, in the world, um, our customer countries are dependent on us doing the right thing and having and doing everything we can to ensure a continuity of wool sales and, and exports. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and biosecurity was going to be my next question. Um, you, together with other colleagues in the Australian wool industry, have worked heavily these past, I don't know, five years? Yeah, the on, on the topic biosecurity. Give us a little bit more details. Yeah, well, I, uh, I wrote a manual for the government. Mm -hmm. uh, that was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, on, on uh, <coughs> which was really about it was about the wool industry and about the flow of wool through, the, and uh, and uh, also <coughs> uh, I had to include um, chapters on 
the diseases that could, uh, that could um, affect the industry. And it's a, there's a manual that's written about the, the wool industry, in effect, for the government officials, and but also for the wool for the wool industry buyers, brokers, and growers about how the government the government regards it's important. So it was, I did it in a manner which um, to try and say <coughs> that uh, there was something for both both sides of the of the, mm -hmm. of the issue. Mm. And the goal of this whole project on biosecurity is to be well prepared in well prepared, case well prepared, of yeah. and it's outbreak. gone on. Yeah, it's gone mm -hmm. on, and uh, others have done uh, lots of documentation and and providing information uh, to the Australian government because it's a matter of convincing the Australian government that well, one working together is really is. Uh, uh, so that uh, we know that they can misrepresent our, our position, and um, uh, ultimately, it, and they, they have to negotiate with our customer countries. We can't; we're not allowed to do okay. that. And the goal would be to, as quickly as possible, get back to trade. Get back mm -hmm. as quickly as possible, mm -hmm. and to, you've got no chance of doing that unless you can demonstrate good control and mm -hmm. understanding of, of your own industry. Mm -hmm. and, the in the, and the wool industry's done that very well uh, and done under the auspices of the Federation of Australian Wool Organisations and I think it was 2014 the uh, Australian Government uh, in Canberra uh, awarded the Federation uh, a special award for the work that it, it was doing then and continues to do. It's one of those things that it never stops. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it never stops. Yeah. You, you, you never reach the end of the, of the road. Okay. Yeah. And I read in your biography that in the beginning of your career, you were actually, as you said also earlier, in the Northwest. Yes, that's right. And you were working on sheep fertility and lamb mortality. What? So tell me a little bit more about ah, that. Ah, well, that was it. I was. Uh, uh, I was 22. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I spent the f those 22 years, all of them, in Sydney, and, and suddenly I uh, and uh, I was a bit adventurous and um, about what I might do when I finished university. Oh, I certainly wanted to work in the in the chosen career, and I was offered and, and accepted a position with the Western Australian Department of Agriculture, working out of. Port Hedland in the Pilbara, which is, uh, is better known for iron ore than, than sheep and wool. But uh, the biggest problem they had in that area and, uh, was that we cut the, the pattern of rainfall that is in summer. And if you're going to uh, produce lambs, their the mother, the ewes, need to be on the best conditions leading up. So. Uh, and that was generally during summer, so it was hot, mm -hmm. uh, very hot. And uh, rams that were brought from the southern parts of the state used to find uh, the northwest summers quite a challenge. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, instead of getting out and chasing the ewes in summer, they'd be camped under a tree. And also they. Uh, uh, they, most of them 
uh, were not well adapted genetically to be able to produce viable semen in, in hot weather. Uh, so that the uh, lambing percentages were down around 30%, which is in, uh, not, not enough to sustain numbers, and you just progressively go back. And, and uh, there have been, as always in any industry, the anecdotal information is, or observations are usually pretty good, and, it's, and in this case, the the anecdotal observations were that if uh, the rams were being bred in the north and and uh, sometimes this happened accidentally, the rams were produced but they, they weren't castrated because they missed a muster or something, and uh, that they were much more uh, uh, active in, in hot weather and, uh, and more fertile and um, uh, involved some work that demonstrated that, that, that the semen was certainly uh, a lot better. And uh, uh, there was enormous difference. There was people, and I got if they bred their own rams, and you can you can apply selection and breeding control so that you're getting superior animals. And uh, we found, and I, I did work with station people to develop those programs. And uh, Suddenly, there were guys that had been getting 30% of the lambs and going backwards for suddenly getting 56 and 60 and more and having surplus sheep, to, uh, which gave them an income, extra income from the sale of surplus sheep. But when you've got, uh, if you've got surplus sheep, you can go through and, and sell your worst rather than your best so that you can lift the average genetic mm -hmm. uh, uh, of the remaining sheep. And as I was saying to you earlier, what I noticed, and um, most of all, was that uh, those people are no different to you and I. I think if things are going well, our self-esteem is high. Things are going uh, not so well, our self-esteem drops. So all these guys, their self-esteem went up, mm -hmm. and they they had and they became more involved in the management of their property, and that had flow-on effects, you know. So. It, was all compounding positive and uh, uh, it was great to see that happening um, but it also uh, it taught me a lot about life <laughs> yeah and I learned a lot yeah, yeah. and uh, I, I, I enjoyed living up there it was great and um, uh, uh, pastoralists as we call them in Australia uh, uh, they're a breed of their own. They're very independent. Yeah, <laughs> very independent and uh, very forthright. Yeah. Okay, that yeah. sounds like an amazing time back then. Now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's something there, some discussions with no place for the faint-hearted. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah and uh, I was really lucky because it gave me an opportunity to do a, a, an external master's degree at the same time. Mm -hmm. mm. Okay, cool. And one last area to touch on because you've also worked many years for the Australian Wool Testing Authority, yes. AWTA. I've also already interviewed Michael Jackson on the podcast mm. and I read that you were heavily involved in developing some of the standards that are really important standards, nowadays. Yeah. Standards, yes, heavily involved in the, in the development of the IWTA standards. The wool industry is really managed quality assurance standards particularly well. 
the industry collectively working through as as the International Wool Textile Organisation develop standards, unique standards for the wool industry within IWTO and all contracts, uh, global contracts in wool um, involve uh, requirements for test results and then it's just automatic that those tests are conducted in accordance with the IWTO test methods. So it doesn't matter whether it's wool coming from Australia or New Zealand or South America or South Africa. And uh, because you've got this uh, uniformity of testing standards, it means that an international client in China or France or Germany or wherever you he knows that if he's buying or he or she is buying wool from South Africa or Australia or what, that his the results are going to be very they're going they're going to be the same mm-hmm. and uh, that gives him greater confidence in, in predicting his own processing performance. It's really quite unique. And, and and it's not done by an external body, it's done by the industry itself. Yeah, but what I noticed by visiting the IWTO Congress over the last eight years that there's very little interest by the industry attending the sessions that deal with the standards. Yep. And I find it quite sad because actually each sale depends on exactly these standards. Mm. We so heavily rely on them but at the same time, we don't maybe value them enough. So what would you say to motivate others to have more interest yeah, okay, in the well, standards? Well, um, I was talking about it, but I had a similar conversation this afternoon with some guys and that's on a different part, a different aspect of the industry, but the, the answer is exactly the same. And it's no different to life in general or something. If something's going well, mm. Um, you take it for, tend to take it granted, and particularly as time goes on. Uh, and the only time you notice is something goes wrong, <laughs> and then the criticism flies. But with something goes well, uh, the longer it goes well, uh, the, the more you take it for granted. And also, what happens is with time, um, uh, the commercial people who were around when some of those standards were being developed and were direct and and, beca- and because there was much discussion about it and, mm. that, and um and you can't develop standards on a technical basis only they've got to take into consideration the commercial requirements there are balance between technical and commercial requirements mm-hmm. and, some, and now that generation of commercial people turned over and gone mm. so we have a, a new generation of commercial people uh, who arrived after the standards were in place and uh, they just see it as a normal part of it and expect and not expect assume that uh, everything's working properly mm-hmm. yeah but do you think they should have more interest in these standards? Oh, and well, we could be more uh, aware. Uh, well, I wouldn't suggest somebody makes a deliberate error to, <laughs> to create. Yeah, look, I think it would. Yeah, it'd be great. Uh, look, uh, and some some individuals take do take more interest. Uh, and uh, uh, the late John Michelle, 
and uh, the late Henry Grinsker, who was a former president of IWTO, uh, and, and a number of others, particularly they, well, they're, they're from that previous era, mm-hmm. too, yeah. from the previous era. Because we are still developing new standards. Which That's correct, have yeah. A but to some extent, we've reached a sunset because, uh, but I'm quite certain that as it becomes, as technology develops new techniques that makes it more feasible to measure some of the remaining things that are more difficult to measure with current mm-hmm. technology, uh, then that'll probably probably happen. Okay. And we'll have new we will have new standards for those. Yeah, people what you call from the older generations who were developing these standards, I hear that you actually really had very heavy debates where people were screaming at each other and really oh disagreeing. We don't have that anymore. I used the expression about when I was in the Northwest, it was no place for the faint-hearted. Some of those discussions were no place for the faint-hearted. Yeah, okay. Mm. Okay, now you told me that you were very much involved in the development of standards and how important they are, but I understand that you were also involved in developing software. So what is that all about? Tell me a little bit more. Yeah, uh, sure, uh, Elizabeth. Um, when I first, <coughs> when I joined AWTA, it was the start of pre-sale testing and uh, that led to enormous increasing workload because we had been in post-sale testing, we had been testing consignments with 100 bales and 200 bales and then uh, in pre-sale testing suddenly it was 10 bales and, and, um, and uh, software was uh, not too much, not too much existed in those days and uh, uh, I just thought that we could make better use of what was available and I became uh, uh, heavily involved in, in writing software for AWTA to help us in the way that we were able to manage the enormous increase in workload and uh, uh, I don't think we would have had enough room to fit all the people in the building <laughs> for if we needed for, for data entry at time and, and that was um, very satisfying because it's not, not only does it um, improve the productivity and efficiency of the operation but you can, as you know, you can put all sorts of error checks yeah. in there and so that the, uh, you improve the, or you provide quality assurance, quality control tools to, uh, to at, at a general level and to individuals. Uh, um, and that was, and, uh, I think, uh, that was a very important part of the authority's development in those days. But I was also fortunate enough to be involved in uh, the transmission of data within the industry, uh, there's, uh, we were, as AWTA, we were providing the, the test data to the brokers or to the private treaty merchants who then had to uh, key it into their own systems uh, and uh, they were under just as much pressure as we were and it was late in times and, um, and uh, I was part of a, a small team of three people, uh, one from the one from the brokers, one from the exporters, and um, uh, and myself who developed the original standard for the uh, uh, 
uh, EDI, electronic data interchange of information within the industry, and uh, we developed a. I've used my hands. <laughs> uh, it's a, a, an industry-specific system, so that uh, uh, we, we weren't relying on outside suppliers or anything. And um, uh, I think uh, uh, it was pride rather than arrogance that uh, it's been one of the great success stories of the of the wool industry for the last 35 years. And uh, uh, we know it works because uh, people take it for granted. Mm -hmm. it, it just just happens, and uh, and, the in, and the wool industry um, uh, in Australia was uh, uh, amongst the early adopters of uh, electronic data interchange. Because uh, it was only around that sort of time, the late sixties, uh, oh sorry, the late seventies that. That the availability of data transmission technology to have one computer talk to mm. another was starting to become available, and it was at AIDS, it was well before Microsoft was when there was uh, probably seven or eight different brands of, of computers in the, in the wool industry, each with their own uh, operating, oh, okay. own languages, own operating system, mm -hmm. and it was a matter of having to then technology that was available to speak to mm -hmm. to all of them and um, that became available about that time and as an industry we grabbed it then we used the first it was AWTA to the brokers then the brokers back to AWTA brokers with catalogue information the buyers uh, the brokers sending all their invoices electronically to to, to buyers and exporters and them sending their information, dump, shipping information onto the dumps. Uh, mm -hmm. It was uh, really, really, really streamlined the industry in the way of information management. So it was the test results that was the first thing? That, that was the first thing, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah, I was in Fremantle at the time, at AWGA in Fremantle, and we had a couple of very progressive brokers there and we, we started with them. and. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it became an industry thing, and mm -hmm. we 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 created our own standards to start. And then as others became involved, um, mm -hmm. um, we shared the ownership, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and what sort of time was that? Uh, that was uh, we AWTA first communicated uh, with the broker in 1978. Wow. Okay. And that that was by tape. Yeah. <laughs> And what is used today has uh, is built on that. Well, yeah, it was built on that. Yeah. Then, then about 1983, we came together as an industry, mm -hmm. and um, it was interesting because in those days, the Australian Wool Corporation had a, a pivotal role in the industry, the, the, the forerunner of Australian Wool Innovation today, and. Uh, they used to fund most of the industry committees and the industry said, no, we'll do it ourselves. And we wanted AWC to be a member, but <laughs> so it was done as a, as a genuine industry approach, uh, supported by and funded by industry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a, yeah, interesting part of the whole history. Oh, but yeah, it was <laughs> an incredibly exciting time. <laughs> it was really exciting. If you're in a test house, it was incredible. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot more wool around the brokers. Everyone had to 
able to live with this new requirement. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for sharing all these stories uh, along your career. It's been fascinating to listen to you. And yeah, thanks for all the work that you do for the wool industry. Ah, no, thanks, Lucas. I've enjoyed it. And um, there's something nice about being forced to go back and remember things. Yes, okay. Well, all the best and thank you. Bye-bye. Thank bye. you. That was my interview with Peter Morgan. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you want to find out more about Peter Morgan and his work, then head on over to the show notes at elizabethvandelden.com forward slash 086. Once again, elizabethvandelden.com forward slash 086. Thank you for listening to the show today. I really appreciate you. Talk to you again next week and bye for now.